Well, let's take the word of God and turn, if you would, with me to the book of Exodus in chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9. We come now as we are studying through the plagues. We come to plague number 6. Let me remind you why God sent the plagues in the land of Egypt. First of all, He sent the plagues to manifest His power in a public fashion. He also did so to display His wrath against Pharaoh and His cruel treatment of the children of Israel. He also sent the plagues to exercise judgment upon the gods of the Egyptians. As we have seen that every plague is directed in some form, whether directly or indirectly at one of the Egyptian gods, but many times at many of the Egyptian gods at the same time. And also to demonstrate that He is greater than all gods. And by the way, those who would be chiefly acquainted with the Egyptian gods would be the first to admit that this god is different than the Egyptian gods. This is the finger of God. They would approach Pharaoh later and tell him, Knowest thou not that Egypt is destroyed? We also know that God sent the plagues to stand as a warning to all other nations. We know that this account of what we're reading here is going to be known uh, throughout the remainder of the Old Testament in um, God's dealing with the children of Israel and other heathen nations, but we're still talking about it today. And also, lastly, God sent the plague to test the children of Israel. And in a sense, as we've already seen, to strip away the Egyptian gods that had, um, with whom the children of Israel had gotten comfortable. Remember, it, it won't be too long afterwards at Mount Sinai that when Moses is gone for a little too long for them, they're going to fashion a golden calf. And we say, well, where did they learn that? They learned that in Egypt. And so we see that this is not just for the Egyptians, it is also for the children of Israel. Now we come to the close of the second section of plagues. And I've um, broken down the plagues into several sections. Now I haven't done that, but if you look at the structure of those plagues, there's three natural sections. And so now we come to number six. In this plague, we're going to see boils breaking forth on the bodies of both man and beast. This plague, much like the third plague, is going to come without warning um, because of Pharaoh's refusal to let the people go. Now, if you remember uh, the first plague, when the water was turned to blood, Moses was instructed to meet Pharaoh during his morning worship. Uh, the second plague, uh, the frogs everywhere, Moses was instructed to go to Pharaoh and to give him a warning that if he did not let the people go, he would send the frogs. Remember at the end of the second plague, Pharaoh said, I'll let you go, just take the frogs away. And then when he saw that there was respite, he changed his mind. And then the third plague was sent without warning. It was lice. The dust in Egypt was turned to lice. That came without warning. So we have the first three plagues right there. 
the second three plagues is really the structure is the same. In the first one uh, from plague four through six, the first one with the swarms of flies, Moses again is instructed to go to Pharaoh during his morning worship. And he's going to tell Pharaoh that if he doesn't let the people go, God is going to send swarms of flies. Pharaoh does not listen and then plague number five comes. Moses again before the fifth plague is instructed to go to Pharaoh with a warning that if he does not let the people go, then the cattle would die. And now we come to the sixth plague. This plague, much like the third plague, comes without warning. And subsequently, when we look at plague seven, eight, and nine, it follows the same structure. Plague number seven, God is going to tell Moses to meet Pharaoh during his morning worship routine. The plague eight, he's, uh, he's going to be instructed to go to Pharaoh uh, with a warning. Uh, and then plague number nine is also going to come without warning. So there's three sets of three. And then the last plague, number 10, stands alone, which is what's going to bring about uh, the redemption out of Egyptian bondage. So let's read here on this sixth plague, Exodus chapter 9, and we're going to begin reading in verse 8. Now we could just summarize and just say all those plagues that God sent, but I think it's important for us to see uh, the specific plagues, to study them. I think, I hope it's been beneficial for us and stirring for us. And uh, I think when we look at the plagues, something that we may not necessarily think of, but as God is pouring out His wrath and His judgment on the Egyptians. That is mercy. Now the reason why I say that is because God has the power to cut them off. Just the fact that God is restrained in the plagues, which do not kill the Egyptians, is an act of God's mercy. So even when God pours out His judgment itself, it is often an act of mercy. The death of the firstborn only comes to plague 10. So God, we see through this, is a merciful, is a merciful God. So notice plague number 6, verse 8. And the Lord said unto Moses and unto Aaron, Take to you handfuls of ashes of the furnace, and let Moses sprinkle it toward the heaven in the sight of Pharaoh. And it shall come, and it shall become small dust in all the land of Egypt, and shall be a boil breaking forth with blains upon man and upon beast throughout all the land of Egypt. And they took ashes of the furnace and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses sprinkled it upon, uh, up, uh, up, up toward heaven, and it became a boil breaking forth with blains upon man and upon beast. And the magicians, now we haven't read about them for some time. Remember it was after plague three, they couldn't duplicate them, they're gone. But now the Bible says the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boil was upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had spoken unto Moses. 
In this uh, second section of plague, if you remember, the swarm of flies was an attack on the Egyptian body. We talked about in the book of Psalms, recounting the flies, it talks about how they devoured men. So it wasn't like flies as we think about today that annoy us as they fly around. We're talking about the type of flies that devour. We talked about also last time, plague number five, the death of the livestock. And now we're talking about boils upon the body. Now it is interesting here, the succession. Because in plague number five, God destroys Egyptian wealth. Here in plague number six, God is going to destroy Egyptian health. Now the reason why I say that is because if you understand the Egyptians of the day, how cleanliness was a very important to them. If you remember, when the children of Israel, the, uh, Jacob and his sons, came into the land, uh, Joseph said, well, don't tell them you're, you're herdsmen or shepherds because the Egyptians despise them. Why? Because they're dirty. <laughs> that they are involved with animals. And so the Egyptians themselves were known to be very clean. We know that those who were part of the priests, even those who were part of uh, the courts of Pharaoh and Pharaoh himself would shave their entire body. They would clean their bodies over and over again. And to them, the cleanliness of the body. Uh, and so uh, what was very important, and that was true not just for, uh, if you would, uh, having, uh, being clean, but also they, they thought as sickness or any type of body deficiency uh, uh, to be very uh, to, to be very heartbreaking to them as far as this is a judgment of a God upon us. And so they were very, um, uh, they, they thought of um, their bodies, the cleanliness of their bodies and the lack of defilement in their bodies as something uh, very important. And so this is going to be an attack upon Egyptian health and this is connected to some of the Egyptians' God and I'll talk about that in just a moment. But as we look at these verses here and study this sixth plague, I think we understand here a little bit, you know, we have to think beyond, okay, blood and frogs and flies and cattle dying and boil, it's not really that big of a deal. I hope we understand here how big of a deal this was, at least in greater extent than we did before. So when we think about the boils here, uh, this is uh, significant, so significant that the Bible tells us that the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boil. So this is going to be a pretty severe plague. As we look here in verse 8 and 9, if you notice, the Lord comes to Moses again and Aaron. This plague is going to come to Pharaoh without warning. And he uh, tells him to take a handful of ashes of the furnace and to sprinkle it toward heaven in the sight of Pharaoh. So... Moses is not only to sprinkle the ashes towards heaven, he is supposed to do that before Pharaoh. Now it is interesting, I don't find here any recorded words that Moses is supposed to say to Pharaoh as in the past. When God says, go to Pharaoh and tell him this. This time he says, you're not going to say anything, you're just going to stand before him and you're going to sprinkle the ashes before him. So there's going to be no warning. Moses is not going to come this time as he has in the past and say, now I'm about to do this, and this is going to happen, and if you don't let the people go, then this will happen. No, it was immediate without warning. Why? Because in the previous plague, 
Pharaoh did not let the people go after God gave him the warning through Moses. Verse 9, he says, And it shall become become small dust in all the land of Egypt, and shall be a boil breaking forth with blains upon man and upon beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, as we have already mentioned, the Egyptians had great concern about the purity of their bodies. The priests would serve in the temples with, uh, would not serve in their temples with bodies that had been defiled by either sickness or uncleanness or really here, boils of any kind. If you remember when we talked about the swarms of flies, we mentioned that this would immediately, it would be on the bodies of the Egyptians. And so this would immediately stop all Egyptian worship. Because the priest, the Egyptian priest, uh, having... Uh, been bitten by mosquitoes and by different types of flies or whatever those uh, the different types of swarm of flies, they would not go and serve in the temple having their bodies maimed and having been devoured by those flies. And so in just a moment, all Egyptian worship had ceased because they saw that as a defilement of the body and therefore would not offer any type of worship. Now it is interesting here to think because I think there's some aspect here as we think about our own lives and our own culture, uh, there is a great concern for the outward man, but very little concern for the inward man. Now, we know that to be true in our culture. I think that probably is true of all of culture, but we must be more concerned with our spiritual health than we are our physical health. Uh, You see, we fall into the deception of the Egyptians if we spend so much time thinking about our physical health to the neglect of our spiritual health. Now, the reason why I say that is, look, I, I, I think I am not discounting the idea of, well, we have to be healthy and take care of our bodies. We only have one body. And when that body dies, that's it. So we only have one shot at it. And so I'm not advocating, don't take care of your body. I'm just saying here, that the extent that we speak to and study about how to take care of our bodies and what to feed ourselves and what to feed our children, if there's not the same type of intensity towards our spiritual health, I think we're doing something wrong. Because the spiritual health is much more important than our physical health. Bodily exercise, uh, bodily exercise profiteth, Little, that's what the Bible says. Now, it does profit. But compared to spiritual, it's little. It's not as important. Godliness, though, is profitable to all. And so there has to be an importance where we think about our spiritual health as being more important than our physical health. And that was Egyptian life. Now, the word boil here that we see this boil that would come upon the bodies of the Egyptians. Throughout the Old Testament, this idea is not really used a whole lot of times. But let's look at a few references in the Bible to, 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 to see if we can get a, a fit description of what these boils are. The Bible says uh, there was blains upon, upon man. What, what is that? Well, let's uh, go first of all to the book of Leviticus in chapter 13. Let's go to the book of Leviticus chapter 13 um, let's begin reading in verse 18 Leviticus chapter 13 verse 18 
Now, uh, the, the subject here is leprosy, but I want you to notice here how he describes what's going on. Leviticus chapter 13, verse 18. The flesh also in which even in the skin thereof was a boil and is healed, and in the place of the boil there be a white rising or a bright spot, white and somewhat reddish, and it be showed to the priest. And if when the priest seeth it, behold, it be in sight lower than the skin, and the hair thereof is turned white, the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a, notice, plague of leprosy broken out of the boil. So understand that leprosy would come out of first boils. So there would be a way to examine uh, and so here we find here that leprosy is connected first to boils breaking out. Boils can result in a lot of different things. In this case, he's talking about leprosy. Go down to verse 23 of the same chapter. He says, But if the bright spot stay in his place and spread not, it is a burning boil, and the priest shall pronounce him clean. So again, different types of boil. One of them can result in leprosy. And so here the Bible is not really specific when we think about plague number six as to boils. But we can imagine there's been different swarms of flies. Uh, the plagues have been manifested differently. And so we could say here that they could be different types of boils, not just necessarily one kind of, of, of boil. Just like there were swarms of flies, different types of flies. Not necessarily one specific type. If you go over with me to the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 28. Let's look at another reference. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Here in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, God gives a warning to the children of Israel uh, concerning their disobedience towards Him. And notice what He tells them. So Deuteronomy chapter 28. The context here is, God, I, I uh, bring before you a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey, a curse if you disobey. Uh, so in the midst of all of that, in Deuteronomy 28, uh, notice verse 25. The Lord shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. Thou shalt go out one way against them, and flee seven ways before them, and shall be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. And thy carcass shall be meat unto all fowls of the air, unto the beasts of the earth, and, and no man shall fray them away. And the Lord will smite thee with the botch of Egypt, and with the emeralds, and with the scab, and with the itch, whereof thou canst not be healed. So, notice here, he mentions here, the botch of Egypt, that's the same idea, the boils of Egypt. You remember what happened, now this is not too long after, they had seen what had happened in Egypt, and here it describes for us what had happened in Egypt. The emeralds and with the scabs and with the itch. So it kind of describes for us what that was all about. Go, notice down to verse 35. The Lord shall smite thee in the knees and in the legs with a sore botch that cannot be healed from the sole of thy foot unto the top of thy head. And so here we have an idea as he's refer referencing back the botch in Egypt, the boils in Egypt, that it would be from the bottom of your, of your feet to the top of your head, boils everywhere. So we get some further 
um, commentary on that. There's one more reference I would like to go, and that is to Job in Job chapter 2. If you turn there with me, Job chapter 2, we get an idea of what this, these boils may have been like. Uh, this is obviously very severe to Job. In Job chapter 2, notice two verses, verse 7 and 8. So when Satan, uh, so went Satan uh, forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. Now notice here, that's exactly what Deuteronomy had said. If the people of Israel were not found obedient, they would be smitten by God with boils from the bottom of their feet to the top of their head. That's exactly what Job had. Now notice here, God was not judging Job because of a sin here. Uh, God allowed Satan to uh, bring the boils on Job. Notice verse 8. And he, that's Job, took him a potsherd to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes. If you notice here, even down in verse 10. So a boil, by the way, was a source, we know, of severe soreness and irritation. They were... Uh, they would often be running sores uh, in uh, verse 10 uh, of uh, back in Exodus chapter 9. It says that a boil breaking forth in blains. Well, what's blains? The word blains means to belch forth, to erupt. I don't mean to be too graphic here, but that's what blains means. An eruption. So this is a severe thing. Job here is described as trying to scrape. That's how painful it was. He's trying to get rid of those things. It is so painful and so uncomfortable. Look with me in Job 2 verse 13, the end of the chapter. When the friends come, they sit around for seven days. Nobody says anything. Talk about awkward. Notice verse 13. So they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights, and none spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. So we get an idea here. The man is in so much pain, he is on the ground in ashes. He is in so much pain, his, his friends don't know what to say. They saw. In other words, have you ever been with... I remember, I had an experience, I won't give his name, but I went to the hospital with someone who, had, who was having kidney stones. Um, the, the hospital had just given him morphine. After the morphine, he was still... I can still hear his screech. He was still screaming uncontrollably because of his pain. I didn't know what to say. The man is screaming. The nurse is like, there's nothing we can do. We've already given morphine. We can't really give him any more. And so it, what, it takes your breath away. The, the pain and, and the agony. Here the friends of Job on the source. He's got so, sores from the bottom of his, of his feet to the top of his head. He is uncomfortable in whatever position he is in. So when we read about what the book of Deuteronomy said about the botch in Egypt, the bulls in Egypt, he said, I'll smite you the same way from the bottom of your feet to the top of your head. So you can imagine here what is going on in Egypt. Uh, and the Bible says here in our chapter, in uh, Exodus chapter 9, it's not only upon boils on the magicians, it was boils on all the Egyptians. I, I just, uh, I don't think we can really wrap our minds around, but can you imagine a national, um, everybody, a national grieving and groaning? You can 
walk through one of those towns, maybe going through the land of Egypt, one of the on towns on the outskirts, and as you walk through the night, you hear moanings and groanings coming from every cabin as you walk your way down the street. Severe plague. You see, here the gods of the Egyptians had been attacked. Now at times we see they were attacked directly, sometimes indirectly. We know the Nile being turned to blood was a direct attack on an Egyptian god. The Nile was a god to the Egyptians. Now although the Egyptians in their bodies, they did not see themselves as gods, to me here we see that as an indirect attack through this particular plague. The reason why I say that is because there are several Egyptian gods that were connected to health uh, and to plagues. For example, Sekhamet was an Egyptian goddess supposed to have the power to create epidemics and also bring them to an end. Uh, there was even a special priesthood group that was devoted to her worship called the Sunu. So this was, there was a group of priests that was completely dedicated to, her, to the worship of the goddess Sekhamet who could supposedly bring plagues if she was not pleased and remove plagues when she was pleased. I can maybe see those priests being accosted by some of the Egyptians and says, well, when are you going to appeal to Sekhmut? When are you going to appeal to this goddess? Have you not offered sacrifice to her? Can you not make this epidemic cease? There was another god, the god Serapis, was an Egyptian deity who was worshipped for its healing powers. There's another one, maybe more familiar, you may have heard of this god, Amenhotep, was the Egyptian god of medicine, and uh, Amenhotep was considered the guardian of all healing sciences. The Egyptians actually were very advanced in medicine, and any type of healing practice when it came to their health, that's why they were typically very healthy people. And if there was some type of sickness or some type of disease that was going around, they were typically able very well to deal with it and to give what was appropriate to people so that they could overcome whatever that disease was. They were very advanced. But here, knowing those gods and the worship of those gods, the inability of the Egyptian gods must have caused much despair to the Egyptians themselves who worship those gods. I'm reminded of the prophets of Baal. You remember when they're standing on the mountain, the prophets of Baal, and they're, they're put forth a challenge? Well, you pray to your gods, and I'll pray to my God and see which one sends down the fire. You remember them, the prophets of Baal? They're uh, shouting, and they're screaming, and they're even cutting themselves and harming themselves. Can you think about the, 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 the idea here of all those Egyptians who are trying to pray to their God, uh, the healing God, the God of the epidemic, to take away those things, maybe even cutting themselves, maybe even being so desperate, say, if you don't take this away from me, I'm just going to kill myself. You know, Job's wife, when she saw his agony, she said, why don't you just curse God and die? It'd probably be better for you just to die than to be in this type of groaning and pain. And so across the land, there's this groaning and the sorrow and the pain. 
I think it's not only causing the Egyptians to despair in their God, but it's also teaching the children of Israel that the gods of the Egyptians are silent when they are most needed. But yet we know that when they go to Mount Sinai, and when they see that Moses has delayed to come, they, yet they mold a golden calf, and then Aaron says, these are, these are the gods that have brought you out of Egyptian bondage. God has already showed him and stripped away all the Egyptians. God, he, he has made a show of them openly. He triumphed over all the Egyptian gods. There is no reason for them to be worshipped anymore. As we look in verse 10, the Bible says in Exodus 9, 10, And they took ashes of the furnace and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses sprinkled it up toward heaven, and it became boil breaking forth with blames upon men and upon beasts. Here we see the place that they took the ashes from. It's interesting, the Bible says they took the ashes of the furnace. Now the word furnace here comes from a word that means literally a brick oven. Well, we're familiar with the brick ovens as far as what we know. This was the place where the children of Israel would make their bricks. That's where Moses is getting the ashes from. You remember, let's go back in the book of Exodus to chapter 1. In Exodus chapter 1, if you remember, in verse 13 and 14, the Bible says, And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick, and in all manner of service in the field, all their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. And so one of the jobs of the children of Israel was to make brick. Now, they would assemble all the material but then they would, um, right, they would mold those bricks, but then they would put them in those furnaces to heat them up, to strengthen them so that they could be used for building. Now, that was in chapter 1. You remember later in chapter 5 when Moses had his first meeting with Pharaoh and he asked Pharaoh to let the people go. Pharaoh says, I, I don't know the Lord. Why should I obey his voice? And remember, he made things harder for them. Uh, notice in Exodus chapter 5, verse 6, the Bible says, And Pharaoh commanded the same day that the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, Ye shall no more give the people straw to make brick, as heretofore let them go and gather straw for themselves. And the tell of the bricks which they did make heretofore, ye shall lay upon them, ye shall not diminish aught thereof, for they be idle, Therefore they cry, saying, Let us go and sacrifice unto our God. He's making fun of them. He said, We want to go worship their God. Well, let's make him hard. Let's not provide them the material to make the brick. Later in verse 14, And the officers of the children of Israel, which Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were, um, uh, were beaten and demanded, where, Wherefore have ye not fulfilled your task in making brick, both yesterday and today, as heretofore? Well, they wanted them, they not only increased the demand, they didn't provide the material for them to meet the demand. The children of Israel scattered all throughout the land to look for the material, and they were not able to meet the demand. And so they were mistreated as a result. And so here it's interesting to me to think that God tells Moses to go get the ashes from the furnace. What furnace? The furnace that they're, they're making those bricks. The same bricks that Pharaoh, there was other things that they did, but the place where Pharaoh made things harder for them was specifically with the making of bricks. 
It seems to me here that in this plague, there's a little bit of, you reap what you sow. You want to make their bondage harder? Out of that bondage, we're going to take those same ashes, and we're going to throw them to the sky, and those same ashes are going to become boils on your bodies. The agony that you afflicted on the children of Israel is going to be much more severe for you. So Moses performed the commandment of the Lord before Pharaoh, who was, think about Pharaoh here was a witness. Now, they met Pharaoh. I'm not sure exactly where he is. They went before him. Maybe he was checking out to see if the children of Israel were still doing their work. Checking on those furnaces, if those furnaces are still running. And they come and they stand before Pharaoh. And here's Moses. Not a word from Moses. Then you start seeing boils popping up on the bodies of the Egyptians. There is no recorded word, no warning, just the act of throwing the ashes into the air. According to verse 9, these ashes would become small dots throughout the land of Egypt, which would result in boils upon man and upon beast. By the way, we say, well, why not a warning? Hasn't there been enough warnings? As I said earlier, those plagues testify of the mercy of God. God could just stamp them out at any moment. But the fact that His judgment is restrained in some measure, that It's enough to inflict pain, but not to kill them is the mercy of God. Well, why would a God judge like that? I'm thinking, why would a God be so merciful to a people so rebellious? We come to verse 11, and the Bible says, And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boil was upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. Now, We remember here that the magicians in the first three plagues had tried to duplicate the plagues. You remember the water being turned to blood? They did the same thing. Uh, The frogs, they brought forth frogs in the land. Um, They disappeared because when it came to the lies, they tried to duplicate that. But the Bible says they were not able. And they told Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And so... They had disappeared having been unable to duplicate the third plague, much less do away with the plague. It's interesting, as I mentioned this before, but again, to me it's mind-boggling that Pharaoh would not tell his Egyptians, his sorcerers, and his wise men, take away the plague. They can only, in some measure, duplicate what God has done, but not take it away. They've been out of the picture They confessed to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And so, it's interesting the wording here. It is not that the magicians did not want to stand before Moses. The Bible says that they could not stand before Moses. The reason, the Bible gives it to us. The magicians could not stand, notice verse 11. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. They could not They did not have the ability. They did not have the strength. They did not have the presence of mind. They did not have the wherewithal. 
to stand before Moses. Now, what that tells us here is Pharaoh had probably called the wise men, the sorcerers and the magicians, as he had previously done. Remember in in Exodus chapter 7, verse 11, Pharaoh called the wise men and the sorcerers and the magicians, and they did so in like manner. So Pharaoh, whenever he needed them, he called on them. And so this time, I think Pharaoh called on the Egyptians, and somebody came to Pharaoh, so he called for the, uh, the magicians to come. A messenger returns to Pharaoh, and he lets them know, uh, the magicians, they can't come. And Pharaoh would inquire, well, why aren't they able to come? And this would be the reply, they have boils, my king. They are in so much agony they cannot stand before Moses. You see, God had already proved himself to be more powerful than any magician or Egyptian god. Now, God, by, by his mercy, he strikes them again with the plague. This plague is not enough to kill them, but it is enough to show them that they are entirely helpless before Jehovah God. You see, this plague is not only upon the magicians. The Bible tells us, verse 11, that it was upon all the Egyptians. The entire population has been struck by this plague. God, uh, if we go back to plague 5, God had destroyed Egyptian wealth. Now God destroys Egyptian wealth. Health. I think there's an interesting parallel here that is quite convincing here. They lost their wealth and then their health. In the process, attacking the Egyptian gods all along the way, showing them that the gods that they've prayed to, that the gods that they've worshipped can do nothing for them. But here's the question would be, would be, well, wait a minute. Uh, What if uh, I am sick and what if God does not heal me? Does that mean God doesn't have power to heal me? And so this would provoke, this scene would provoke the Egyptians to doubt their gods, uh, to begin to be discontented, discouraged, or to have a lack of faith in their gods. But it's interesting here, this is the same thing that happened to Job. Do you remember, Job first lost his wealth. Then, he lost his health. But do you remember what he said? I'm not going to charge God foolishly. Even in the book of Job, he said himself, Though he slay me, yet... Well, I trust in Him. You see, that is the difference between the Egyptian gods and uh, the Jehovah God, the God of the Bible. The Egyptians worshipped many false gods. These Egyptians connected their blessing, their wealth, and their health, and all the blessings of this world to some god of their own imagination, to some god uh, of their own thinking. But now that their wealth and their health has been stripped away from them, Uh, they have nothing left to worship. And yet we know that Jehovah is the only true and living God, 
because he is still worshipped even though men may lose their wealth and their health God is worthy of our worship nonetheless and that is the great difference between uh, the Egyptian gods who are worshipped simply for the benefit that they give to the Egyptians but God is worshipped for who he is and that, and that is where the, different lie, the difference lies. Job says, you take everything away from me. And by the way, you could even add plague number 10 because the firstborn is going to die. Job also lost his family. He lost his wealth, his family, and his health. But yet he still worshipped God. That is a God worthy of our worship. And then we come to Exodus 9, verse 12. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had spoken unto Moses. So the Lord hardens the heart of Pharaoh. He hardened and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had spoken unto them. I'm thinking, how hard of a heart does it have to be for a man to be so callous to hear the, the groanings and the pain of all of the people in the land of Egypt, to have his, his own personal magician so severely sickened that they cannot even stand in the presence of Moses to be so hard-hearted that he still does not listen. Now, we know what the Bible says. The Bible says God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. His heart was hardened. He hardened his heart. All three of these are involved. Uh, Pharaoh's heart was hardened by the circumstances. Uh, Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God. But Pharaoh also hardened his heart himself. And this is consistent with biblical revelation. Romans chapter 1 verse 28. The Bible says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over unto a reprobate mind. You want to live without God? You want to live uh, 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 not under my authority? You don't want to submit to me? I will give you, I will harden your heart and I'll give you more of what you want. To such a degree that by the end you're going to lose every, everything. And God, what is He trying to do? He's trying to get Pharaoh to be so disgusted with himself that the answer, only answer at the end is God. Now one final point on this sixth plague. There was no end promised or requested. Now the reason why I say that is because up to this point, remember, God has either assigned a number of days for the plague to last, or God has taken away the plague, or a plague in and of itself comes to an end. Let me explain. Here, this plague, the boils, would simply run its course through the human body. Uh, the body itself is designed to fight infection and sores. However, the body here is not exempt. In that process, it is not exempt of suffering. If you remember plague number five, the end of the plague was, well, all the cattle died. Right? So the plague in itself was an end. 
all the cattle died. That's it. Pharaoh, even at the end, he checked. He went over in Goshen. He checked between the cattle of the Egyptians and the cattle of the children of Israel. And he saw that not one cattle of the children of Israel died. So the plague was an in and of itself. Plague number four, remember the swarms of flies. Well, the swarms of flies ended when God removed the flies. The Bible says, after God removed them, there was not one single one left. God removed them. That was the end of that plague. Plague number three. Uh, there was the lice, remember, uh, on the human body. Now, there is no end mention in plague number three, just that the magicians declared that this is the finger of God. However, lice today live for about 30 days on a person's head. They cannot live longer than 24 hours on non-human surfaces. Now, whether it's a different type of lice, I don't know. Whether they've adapted to this day, we, we don't know. The point is today. So this plague of lice was temporary in nature. There is no end that was announced. God didn't say He removed the lice, but we know the lice, they run their course, they live, and then they die, like many insects do. So that plague would run its course. Plague number two, the end, remember, was the death of the frogs. God killed the frogs, and the Egyptians now had to uh, put them in heaps all throughout the land. So God killed them. God got rid of them. That was the end of plague two. And then plague number one, remember, the water being turned to blood after seven days were fulfilled. So it was seven days. Once that period was fulfilled, that was it. So what I'm saying is that in the end of those plagues, some of those plagues have ended by a promise or a request from Pharaoh or it's run its appointed course that God has said, seven days. Or, such as the lice and the boils, you just leave it alone and it, it runs its course. So I, I don't know how long the Egyptians would have the boils. I was trying to look about different types of boils, how long they typically last on men and things like that. There's a lot of different types. So we don't know. But the point that I'm making is that they were never taken away. At least it's not that we can see in the scriptures. But the body does heal itself, does fight infection and things like that. But the point is, men would go through this struggle for the Egyptians, for, through this spirit of defilement, throughout the entire period as a pagan people, begging their gods to deliver them from the pain and from the agony until it runs its course. So you can imagine at the end of this plague you have a distraught, exhausted, uh, exhausted, desperate, despairing people. I mean, when you're really sick at the end, you're like, oh, that was tough. I was talking to uh, Wayne. They're, uh, they're away on vacation this week, but uh, he was sick a few weeks ago, and he's, he said, man, that's the worst six I've, I've ever been I say it was terrible I was sometimes in agony I'm thinking well that's Wayne speaking so I mean if if, if he fell in agony it's got, had to be pretty severe and so there's something about that that has got to be exhausting and so it runs its course what does that teach us it teaches us something about God you know 
as the Egyptians are sitting there, if we know the magicians were unable to stand before Pharaoh, we know Job, the only thing he could do was lay down in ashes for seven days, saying not a word in complete agony. That's a time of reflection, isn't it? God has taken away our wealth. God has taken away our health. He has stripped everything away. And you don't know you could even die. And so what are the thoughts in that moment of those Egyptians? What is the thought of Pharaoh in that moment? The Bible says that the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he hearkened not unto them. So, we get to this point point, we think, well, wait. what else does God need to prove? I mean, what else does God need to do that can convince man And here is where we arrive at is that there is no way that any Egyptian or that Pharaoh himself can deny the power of Jehovah God. There's no way they can deny it. They've seen it. They've experienced it themselves. But they may not necessarily... So I think you could say they believed in what had happened. They can't deny what's real. But they did not believe and submit to Jehovah God. You know, Romans 1 says, That which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. I've said from this pulpit many times that I don't believe there are any atheists. There are only people who deny that which they already know to be true men know that there is a God they know it they know it intuitively they believe it they believe there is a God but they may not believe in him as the only true and living God to whom they give account to so see there's no way that Pharaoh cannot believe that God has power and that God is the almighty God But there's a lack here of submission. You see, that's the problem with man. It's the sheer wickedness of the human heart. The sheer wickedness of the human heart. I mean, fast forward, get to the time of Jesus Christ. Well, how how many miracles does he need to do? How many times does... Uh, Jesus Christ, he rose Lazarus from the dead. The Pharisees were there to see it, and they still did not believe. Now, they had to believe in the miracle, but they did not believe in Jesus Christ and submit to him. Jesus, I I believe, gave us the answer to that. If you turn with me to John chapter 3.
John 3, verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Verse 19. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world. Would we say, could we say that Pharaoh and the Egyptians received some light from God? Yeah, they received a revelation from God. That's what they did. It was a moment to wake up. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world... And men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. You see, the reason why Pharaoh believes but that he doesn't want to believe is because at heart he is wicked. He is under the condemnation of God and he does not want to see himself under the condemnation of God. He wants to see himself as a God. He wants to see himself as righteous. He wants to see himself as uh, unaccountable to anyone but himself. And then the Bible says in John 3.20, Jesus says, For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. You see, Pharaoh, he believed in the power of God, but he did not believe in the power of God enough to say, I'm guilty, I'm wrong, I'm a sinner, I'm guilty, I deserve to die, I deserve the judgment of God, just take me now. Believed in a powerful God without believing and submitting to that same God. Why? Because of the wickedness of man. That's the condemnation. Light is coming to the world. But the reason why they reject the light is because their deeds are evil. They love darkness rather than light. They love their sin. People don't come to Jesus Christ because they don't like the idea of Jesus Christ. They don't come to Jesus Christ because they love their sin too much. And so I think that's the case for Pharaoh. And so God is going to apply his hand of judgment, and he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He's going to give Pharaoh more of what he wants. And the end is not going to be a happy ending for Pharaoh. That Pharaoh who is going to be in his own mind, Egypt has been on the ascent all along. The kings before him, the kingdom of Egypt has been ascending on the ascent ever since the time of Joseph has been on the ascent. But after the ten plagues, Egypt will never recover. Never recover. Uh, it reached its zenith during the time of Moses. And after the ten plagues, it goes out. So this Pharaoh who thought himself that he would usher in the kingdom of Egypt into greater power and glory than before, would be the one who would see Egypt ruined under his rule. You reject the God, refuse to submit to Him, because you love your sin too much. Let me show you what more of your sin produces. Well, we, we live in the same world. 
You see, I, I believe that God, yes, as people harden their hearts toward God in the society we live in, who are promoting all kinds of ungodliness and filth and immorality, I believe that God is applying His hand and God is hardening the heart of those who are promoting all kinds of violence and wickedness. He says, you want your sin, I'll give you more of it so that you see what it produces. But you know what it does in the end? In the end, you have to... What does Pharaoh happen in the end? He lets the people go. He doesn't trust in Jehovah God, but he lets the people go. He's exhausted. See, at the end of the line, there are many people who get to the place where they say, Oh, I was wrong. Sin is terrible. Look at what it produces. But they never turn to God. Uh, much like Judas, he had sorrow, but not enough to turn to Christ. Why? Because still people want the easy road. They want the easy life. But they want it without God. And so God is stripping away their health. Getting them down in their quietness with nothing. In their agony. Stripping everything away from them. To show them who He is. And so may the Lord help us that we would consider those truths and that we would ask ourselves this question. If God took away all of our wealth and all of our health, would we still worship Him? Or... Do we worship God because it's convenient for us or because we think that He's going to bless us? And so that's why we worship Him. See, God is worthy of our worship not because of what He does for us. God is worthy of our worship because of who He is. Because of who He is.